The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. The name of Miguel Molinos was not a familiar name to me. In fact, I'd never heard it before. But some researchers found in the journals and letters of John Wesley references to this godly man. And then he wrote a little book, Golden Thoughts, from the spiritual guide. With that, I want to share with you a brief biological sketch of this man, Miguel. He was Spanish. He was born in, of course, Spain, December 21, 1627. He was educated for the priesthood he passed and received his theological degree and then was sent to Rome, anxious to acquire a deeper knowledge of the life of God in man's soul. When he was 48 years of age, he published a little Italian book, The Spiritual Guide. Then it was translated into Spanish and in Spain, it found a very wide circulation. Now, many in that day were wearied. They were exhausted by all of the outward ceremonies. But these outward ceremonies, regardless of how intense the work was, how many Hail Marys were said, how many times... They went through the rituals. There was no inner rest. And so Molinos began to cry out for an inner peace. He began to seek God for an inner peace in his soul. Now, the reason I want to share this with you today is because I see the same thing happening in Western culture. No, we don't have, most of us, at least, have not been raised with extensive rituals. Some of you are still caught in all of your rituals, and that is your source of life. You do them daily. Some of you go to Mass every day. And yet my observation of those who practice these kinds of dedicated love of ritual, there is absent in them that earnest inner light, that passionate cry for God. But they're not the only ones. I find Americans in general lack an inner peace. It's as though we have been pushed to the extreme limit 
that technology can take us emotionally. And so many go to Facebook day after day. I'm embarrassed by what I have read on Facebook. The Lord told me some time ago, cut it off. And I said, but Lord, it's an avenue of ministry. Cut it off. And so I have utterly cut off all of my social media. But many that I speak with will post on the internet, on the Facebook page. They're going to a doctor. They're going to a restaurant. They're having this event. They're doing this. They're doing that. Exposing the most innermost secrets of their life and of their heart that others can read. Expressing relationships with others on this Facebook post. Showing pictures I have been shocked by some who have called themselves Christians and then I've looked at some of their risque photos or some of their photos at a nightclub or some other place that they have no business being at. I've watched as there has been an emptying of intimacy in our culture. A loneliness toxicity. I've spent many, many hours alone over these last years after my wife's death. And yes, there has been loneliness, but I've been drawn into a a deep inner place of quiet with my soul and Jesus. And it's out of that quiet place that I'm able to come and speak to you day after day. Without that, I would not be able to bring to you the messages that I consistently bring. They're not messages that are birthed out of books. They're not messages that are birthed out of an intellectual understanding, but rather out of the Spirit Now, we do need a very clear intellectual understanding, and I will deal with Scripture today in a manner that exposes our need to intellectually understand what the issues are. But men and women are not moved by intellectual understanding. We're moved by emotion. If our relationship with Jesus is cold and dead, we really will not have an inner place where we dwell with him. And it's of utmost importance that we come to a place in our hearts where we're no longer grasping a quietude, a peace. This constant rumble of ambition, the rat race, striving. It does not honor Jesus. And in the midst of all of this striving, it is very easy then to be caught into the lust for things, the lust for money, the lust for sexual pleasure, 
the lust for just pleasure. And it brings such a shallowness to the soul. Now, part of what's happened also in our culture is that we have wonderful physicians and antibiotics. When I was in college, I had appendicitis. I had to soberly recognize that if I was not able to be rushed to the hospital and immediately sent into emergency surgery, I probably would have died. But because we had a surgical unit ready to go into action and then finding that my appendix had burst, heavy doses of antibiotics to stop the spread of that infection that had taken over my appendix, without that I would have died. And many have in the past history died of appendicitis or of some other malady. But a part of what these sicknesses, whether it be tuberculosis or appendicitis or whatever the case was, it caused men to know and women to know how fragile their life was. It was unusual in early America to find a family that had not lost one or two children to disease. The pain and anguish of that lost child would enhance that person and that family's understanding that life is very short and very precious. In our culture today, we have lost a sense of the of the preciousness of living and have not adequately recognized that it is a gift to us. Life is not something that is owed to us. It is a gift given by the almighty hand of God. It is a short probationary time. It doesn't matter whether it's 16 or 17 years or if it's 70 years or 80 years. It is a brief probationary time. And this man, Miguel, came teaching something very significant that we, in our modern day, need to recapture. We need to begin to understand what he was saying and why he was saying it. He taught that the soul of a person was quite literally the temple of God. He taught that it was man's duty to be holy, and he could find the fellowship with the God of heaven that he so much hungered for within the very temple of his being, that God fashioned him or her. He's saying that God is the one who created you, and he created you to have fellowship with himself. You are, he taught, the habitation of God. Therefore, he taught, we should watch very carefully against anything that would defile or harm 
this body. Now, I personally have have made some choices now that I am not a young man. I decided that I would no longer risk learning to snowboard or to go snow skiing. Now, if you're an expert skier, it's a very enjoyable sport and it's out in nature. But for me, it is a risk of breaking a leg, of doing severe damage to my body. And if I do that, how can I preach the gospel? How can I carry on the work that God has assigned me? God has not assigned me to ride on a motorcycle, which I would love to own a motorcycle, but I will not do so. I would love to go snow skiing, I'd love to learn how to snowboard. But there are some things now at my age I will not risk, even though physically I am still a very young man, strong and, and, and healthy. But I won't do those things because I know my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and I have been assigned certain tasks in the work of the kingdom of God. And those tasks take preeminence over my own personal desires. He taught that the soul is the very center of a man. The habitation, the kingdom of God. That therefore, to the end the sovereign king may rest on that throne they ought to take pains to keep the soul pure, quiet, peaceable. They ought to keep the soul free of false affections and desires and thoughts. They should keep the soul at peace in temptations and in tribulations. That they ought always to keep their heart in peace. That the temple of God cannot be pure if there is not an inner peace. That they should make certain that they obey the Lord God in even the smallest of things. <clears throat> Be willing to suffer without being in the least disturbed. That whatever it pleases the Lord to send, to receive it with joy. Now these are not easy parts of the Christian life. And they obviously come as a fruit of the Spirit. They obviously come by the indwelling power of the Holy God. But in the ruckus, in the riot, in the confusion of the American life, it would seem odd to set oneself apart to be holy. 
I am calling for men and women to give up seeking after everything of this world and to begin to seek only the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking for a people to come to the prayer chapel and begin to gather together around the person of Jesus and not the programs of the church. I'm looking for a people who are who are hearing what I'm saying and who are hungry in their inner being to have that peace of complete giving over of myself into the hands of Jesus Christ. For Miguel was right. We are called to belong solely to Jesus Christ. We are called to allow him to dwell in us and with us. But if your interest is the golf game and that absorbs your time, if your interest is fishing, kayaking, swimming, biking, rugby, I could name many, many, many different kinds of things that absorb our time and our attention in this modern age television, movies, opera, the dance. There are so many things, card playing, so many things that have no eternal merit and are of value only for brief respites. But if we give our full attention to these things after we have worked and earned money so that our life is a series of moves from working hard to playing hard, I hear that phrase today regularly, I work hard, I play hard, then you really have no time for the deep inner work of the Holy Spirit that he, would, that he would desire to do in you to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, you may look like your favorite hero in whatever sport you have taken up. You may look like your image of the successful businessman or banker or IT professional, or teacher, or doctor. You may look like that image of what you have imagined would be success, but Jesus said, if you win the whole world and you lose your soul, what have you gained? Some of you are gaining great ground professionally and you are making a wonderful contribution at work 
but what is your heavenly contribution? And have you been formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ? Do you look like Jesus? Do you talk like Jesus? Do you walk like Jesus? Well, this man, Miguel, had a very charming manner, and he had a very consistent and holy life. He was a constant contradiction to the prevailing loose standards of his day. Many thought his teachings were a new revelation because they were in such opposition to the loose teachings of the church of that day, of the Roman Catholic Church of that day. His whole focus was on remaining pure before God, walking clean before a holy God, being transformed into the likeness of this God, of caring carefully for the inner life, not allowing the trauma of the day to turn one's heart in bitterness or anger or hurt, but reflecting on the person of Jesus. Now, this was to be tried in his heart. The devil will not allow a person to simply follow after Jesus without a bitter attack. Now, what happened is there were a group of people that began to be attracted to this message of holiness and purity of heart. And as these people came, they began earnest times of prayer together. They found a personal connection, and revival was the result. Now, many eminent men in Rome were attracted to this godly priest. Even Pope Innocent XI would have made him a cardinal, considering him as a spiritual advisor. Bishop Burnett said, the new method of, of Miguel does so much prevail in Naples that he believed there were 20,000 followers in that city. He hath proposed a great reformation in men's minds and, manner, and manners. He hath many priests in Italy, but chiefly in Naples. But such... Godliness did not escape the notice of the Jesuits. They feared that this teaching of Miguel regarding holiness would endanger the Roman Catholic system. Organized religion seems to always be in opposition to a living organism. Many, many, many years ago, 
I started my ministry as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor in Rockville, Maryland. When I went to the Rockville Seventh-day Adventist Church, it had just gone through a bitter dispute and split. And I think at the first meeting that I held, there were only six or eight people present. I immediately began to lift up the holiness of Jesus, calling men and women to repent and get right, to forgive those who had wronged them in leaving the church. And soon, large numbers of people began to come. Our church would seat about 250. Often we would have only standing room in the sanctuary. And the next step was to begin a series of classes for discipleship. And so on Wednesday evening, we would meet, we would have dinner together, and then we would divide up into various classes that were being taught by different members of the congregation. And of course, the next step was people began to be hungry to pray. And so we began to hold all-night prayer vigils. At this point, my supervisor became very agitated, very upset. He said that we were creating a cult mentality, that we were not denominational. And he forbid me from holding any more all-night prayer meetings. And he told me that the classes had to be disbanded and that I, as the senior pastor of the church, had to lead a Wednesday night teaching on what denominationalism was about in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Obviously, I did none of those things, and the result was I had to move to another conference. And I was sent to another conference, to a mega church as an associate pastor, and the senior pastor was assigned the task of retraining me in the ways of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. Now, I was young and rash, and I had just returned from a visit in New England to the monks of the Western Priory. I was so impressed by what I saw. The monks came out with their guitars. They stood in the opening of the barn, and perhaps six or eight hundred people gathered sitting on blankets on the grass. And it was a time of praise and worship such as I had never before experienced. It did not bother me that these were Roman Catholic monks. My only concern was that we be worshiping Jesus. When I returned to my pulpit, I described these events and then in the rashness of my youth, I said, 
it might be well for all of us to have the church buildings just burned down and build barns and invite people to come and sit in the grass in the meadow that we would have when the ugly buildings were gone. Well, I was not serious. There was, of course, laughter when I said that, and it was a frivolous thing to say. But that week I received a notice that I was to appear before the president of the World Church of Seventh-day Adventists to be reprimanded for my words that past Sunday. I was astonished that the very head president by the name of Pearson would summon me to the headquarters of the World Church to rebuke me. And he did so very firmly and said that I must return to my congregation and repent and that I would no longer be allowed any words of offense against the denomination. It was not long until, at the Lord's leading, I departed from the Seventh-day Adventist Church and began to search the scriptures and learned of the many theological heirs in that denomination. And if you are part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I pray that you are finding Jesus. And if you are not, then please flee. I did not find Jesus in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I found a cult mentality, a mentality of severe repression and dishonesty. Your experience may be different, and if it is, thank you. I'm happy it is. Now, the Jesuits were the, if I could refer to them as the German shepherds, they were the guard dogs after the Reformation. They were the guard dogs to destroy any uprising. Now, these disciples of, of the Spanish priest were noted for their wonderful, godly lives. They were extremely devout to Jesus. They completely cut off the frivolities of the world and they gave themselves over to the pious works of charity and brotherly sympathy. They were also seen to be indifferent to those external ways of manifesting piety, which the Romanist church had always insisted on. For example, they seldom went to Mass they set small store by corporal austerities, relics, image worship, pilgrimage. They spent very little time upon the mass for the souls of deceased relatives. And above all, they simply abandoned the confessional. Had the movement been allowed to go on, the foundation of which 
the ecclesiastical system of that church rested would have been destroyed. The movement was a silent revolution, although it displayed no standard of revolt. But the keen eyes of the Jesuits soon discovered its meaning and the end to which it was leading. If God could be met by any individual in his own privacy, what need for the confessional or for the priest? The officials of the church saw that if this thing grew, the money needed to pay her vast retinue of cardinals and to sustain her luxurious courts would not be forthcoming. The Jesuits remembered what the Reformation had done for the German people under Martin Luther. They did not wish anything of that kind to influence Spain and Italy. A popular Jesuit, Italian preacher, and writer was chosen to attack the principles that Miguel was teaching. He wrote a book which, in a very clever way, praised quietism but depreciated its use. This book raised an outcry for the ruling powers of Rome who were strongly in favor of Miguel's teaching and of his followers. The Inquisition was asked to interfere and as a result, the entire treaty was condemned. But the Jesuits were not to be so easily turned aside. They knew that they had a strong influence over the king of France, Louis the Fifteenth, or the Fourteenth, Louis the Fourteenth of France. This powerful monarch had sins which were very dear to him, and he was ready to pay any price asked by the Jesuits as a license to continue walking in his sin against God. So the king's confessor made the king feel that nothing would bring him favor like the condemnation of Miguel and his followers. And so one of the dearest friends of Miguel was ordered to do a rigorous treatment condemning the teachings. This one-time friend did not hesitate to turn traitor. He denounced Miguel to the Inquisition, affirming that his friendship with him had only been in order to direct and detect the heresy which he found in his friend's beliefs. The Inquisition then imprisoned Manguel. In 1685, he was nearing 60 years of age. For almost two years, he was kept in close confinement and was tortured in the hope that he would say something in a confession that could be used to cause him to be burned at the stake. Some thought that the Jesuits had put off the trial, thinking that after the death of the Pope, who was favorable to Miguel, 
they would be more successful in condemning this man of God. The letters of the prisoner, as he wrote to friends, were used to implicate others and to intimidate. Now, they held a trial. There was no evidence, but they stirred a crowd up to cry, to the stake, to the stake. He was soundly condemned. Few trials have ever been so utterly unfair as this man's trial. The charges were not founded on his theology or his writings but on the fact that he was said to have been impure. It is stated that he confessed impurities. No more cruel or unjust charge could have been brought against any man. From the place of trial, he was led back to his prison, and he stayed in prison until his death on December 28, 1696, when he was 70 years of age. His real crime in the eyes of the Jesuits was that he and his followers lived pure lives and yet did not go to confessional, that they also set small store by the relic relevance and the image worship and the various superstitious rites which Romanists thought to be essential to religion, the teachings which brought upon him the attack of the Inquisition was that there may be religion without priestcraft and an approach to God's footstool without first kneeling at the priest's knee. These truths which we enjoy today were purchased at a dear price by men of the past, but unfortunately we do not treasure them. And gradually there has arisen, even now within the Protestant churches of America, a form of Roman Catholicism which frequents the altar and looks to the minister to absolve sin by a pat on the back and a short sinner's prayer, saying that this secures eternal life when no life from God has been experienced. I'm going to close this story with with his own words. What great riches is it to be poor? What a mighty honor to be despised. What a height it is to be beaten down. What a comfort it is to be afflicted. What a credit of knowledge it is to be reputed ignorant. And finally, what a happiness of happiness to be crucified with Christ. This is the lot which the apostles gloried in. Galatians 6.14 God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
this godly priest has a vital word for us today that we too could begin to settle in our hearts the true understanding and reality of who Jesus Christ is, what he did for us, what his call on our life is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I want my heart to be absolutely pure. I'm not going to compromise with darkness. I'm not going to play the devil's game. I'm not going to seek out the things of entertainment in our culture. I'm going to seek to love God's people and to speak to you in a manner that causes you to cry out in your heart, I too must be pure. I too must leave all of these things of advantage in the world that I might be found in Christ Jesus Are you pure today? Have you allowed the Lord Jesus Christ to have his way in your heart? We have a few minutes left in this broadcast. I'd like to open the telephone lines for you. If you'd like me to pray for you, I would be happy to do so. If you have a testimony of God's deliverance in your life, if you have a commitment to walk pure and clean before God, if you've made that covenant, call and share what Jesus is doing. Our phone number in studio is 877-534-0780. For technical reasons, we've not been able to open the phone lines, but I think finally we're ready to try. So if you would like to call and and share that journey, if you have a pure heart, if you don't, and you would simply like to be prayed for, please call right now, 877-534-0780. And I pray today, You'll be bold. That you'll come into the presence of God. That your heart will hunger for Jesus. While I'm waiting for a call, I want to read a scripture for you in 1 John. This is from the New Lavender Translation of the New Testament. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com, and you'll see there a description of of this Bible and where you can order it. Let me just read now 1 John, the second chapter. I'll begin with verse 15. You must not love the world 
neither the things in the world. If anyone may love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because every conceivable thing which is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the conceit of life, is not out of the Father, but is out of the world. And so the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But the one doing the will of God continues into the age. That is the age that is now upon us when Jesus comes. You have to make a decision, my brother, my sister, a very straight-up decision. Will I choose to simply dismiss from my life everything that is of darkness, everything that is of self? And will I turn and receive from Jesus Christ all that is of the Spirit, Will I produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. Will I produce by the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus? Will I produce the fruit of the Spirit? Or will I produce the fruit of darkness? self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the heart, the lust of the flesh. He continues, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. Accordingly, we know that it is the last hour. Now the word antichrist is merely a transliteration of the Greek word antichristos. John is the only writer in the New Testament who uses this term. Here the preposition anti indicates exchange or replacement, one thing in place of another. That old man of holiness, a wonderful writer, Robert Law, says the prefix anti denotes not opposition simply, but opposition in the guise of similarity. In other words, the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to exert a very corrupting influence through the work of false teachers. These false teachers will teach a Gnostic interpretation of Christ's person in the place of biblical revelation. Now, the supreme danger of any false system is in its power to deceive by the opposition of similarity to promote itself in the guise of Christianity. 
It is significant, moreover, that it is not in the world, but in the perversion of Christianity, that John finds the embodiment of the idea of Antichrist. It may come as a surprise to many of you, but Islam is a cult of Christianity. They were Aryans who founded Islam. They denied that Jesus Christ was one and the same person. They said Jesus could not have been God. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. And then they taught that Christ came from heaven in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And for a time, he was one with Jesus. And then he departed and Jesus was crucified. And so they teach that Jesus was a good man. But Islam utterly corrupts everything and teaches the opposite to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it found its foothold because it was so similar. And of course, the Gnostics have perverted their teachings into the modern church of America. They're teaching that the inner person was gold and the outward man could be utterly corrupt and could walk in sin and in fact would always be filthy. But nevertheless, the inner place was gold and was pure. And so the teaching came most strongly through John Calvin and then others have picked it up and expanded it to a point even beyond what John Calvin taught. John Calvin always taught that you could not separate justification and sanctification in his institutes. But today in the modern church, that's been totally separated. So the Gnostic teaching is alive and well, and it is so deceptive because of its similarity to the gospel so that many Christians attending Presbyterian or even some Baptist churches or other denominations do not even begin to understand that they are teaching not the gospel of Jesus, but a Gnostic gospel of the sinning Christian. And so they rob from the gospel the power to transform a man or woman into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is what John calls the Antichrist. Now, will a man come at the end of time who will be identified as the great Antichrist, the great deceiver? Yes, I suspect so. But there have been many Antichrists, and the Antichrist rules in the modern American church with the belief in the sinning Christian. That is an Antichrist belief. I don't want you to be deceived. I want you not to have the gospel of Jesus corrupted in your life. I want you to 
focus your whole attention upon Jesus and what he did for us at Calvary's tree. He made an atoning sacrifice. He was the atoning sacrifice. It was not something done to him. He was the atoning sacrifice. And he has paved the way for you and for me to be made righteous in reality. He did not forgive past, present, and future sins at Calvary. That is another Antichrist belief. He taught instead that the provision was all there. And now from the temple described in the book of Hebrews, he ministers in intercession and the blood and the wiping clean of God's people as they repent. And he transforms them into the likeness of Jesus so that we walk pure and clean. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I pray that this has been useful to you today. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I love you, my brother, my sister. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon.